if you've got a Bible this morning, we're gonna be finishing up the book of Hebrews. We're gonna be in chapter 12. I put chapter 12, one through 11 on the handouts for this week. Steve told me you guys have been in Hebrews for a few weeks. And so it's, a, it's kind of an awkward spot to come in and have to finish a book that somebody else started, but I think we'll do okay this morning. I don't know how many of you guys watched any football yesterday, but number two, three, and four in the country lost yesterday. It was a crazy day, a day worthy of 2016 in NCAA football yesterday. And I tell you what, I'm not a big underdog guy, but I do love underdogs when it comes to football. I think because it reminds me of my favorite football movie, which is Rudy. Anybody seen the movie Rudy? Rudy's a guy who's not really good at anything. He doesn't have any particular set of skills. He's not overly athletic. He's not very big, but he does have one thing, heart. He's got heart. And that's what we all love about him. I think there's something about Rudy that makes us think maybe that could be me. Maybe that could be me getting carried off that field. If you look at what Rudy really brings to the table, it's one little word, grit. Grit is what Rudy brings to the table. Grit is what every underdog story brings to the table. Grit is what separates people who are truly successful from those who are planning someday to be successful. In fact, there was a a lady who released a book called Grit last year named Angela Duckworth, and she's a psychologist, and she went through and she looked at all kinds of professions. She went to West Point. to to interview all their new cadets and see who would make it and who would graduate at the top of the class, and they followed them for four years. She went to the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which kids would do the best. She went and followed around first-year teachers and said, which ones are going to be the best teachers? And she surveyed all of the skills. She surveyed IQ. She surveyed emotional intelligence. She surveyed uh, the things that they had done in the past, resumes. And she found that there's only one real universal predictor of success in all of those avenues, grit. She defines grit as passion plus perseverance, Passion plus perseverance equals grit. The gritty individual approaches achievement as a marathon, their only advantage being their stamina. Sticking with something for the long haul, not just for a few weeks, not just for a few months, but sometimes even a few years, is what truly separates people who are successful from people who want to be successful. She makes this great observation. Indeed, it seems like the costs and benefits of passion and perseverance don't always pay off in the short run. In fact, it's more sensible to give up and move on. It can be yours in years or more if grit pays off, but right now your life could be a lot more pleasant if you would give in. The amazing thing about the people that they surveyed is not only were they successful because of their hard work, but all of their other measurable, tangible skills went up. For people that had grit, they found that children in high school taking tests, their IQ went up. Teachers became more competent. Spelling bee champions learned more words. Without effort, skill is nothing more than what you could have done but didn't. 
but with grit, you are truly remarkable. We're going to talk this morning about something that Angela Duckworth is onto, but she doesn't quite know what she's onto. She's been surveying grit for people that are enrolled in schools and people who are uh, trying to win competitions, but she doesn't know that the Bible talks about grit. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, if you're there, in chapter 12, makes a big point of saying, if you want to succeed spiritually, if you want to continue to walk with Christ in sanctification, you need one thing, grit. That's what we all need in our spiritual life, is a little bit of stick to itness, a little bit of hard work, a little bit of perseverance, makes all the difference in our spiritual life. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Hebrews 11 is one of the more famous passages in the Bible. It's known sometimes as the hall of faith. It is a story about all the people who have gone before, who have lived out a life of faith, but who didn't get what they were hoping for in this lifetime. The author starts out the, the book, uh, chapter 11, by saying, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That means that if we wanna live a life of faith following Christ, we won't always be able to see the reward that's coming our way for following him. It means that sometimes when we follow Christ, we have to trust not just in what is seen, but also in what is unseen. He says, and so I'm gonna tell you about a few people who did that well. Sure enough, you go from the very beginning, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And he says, Noah was faithful when he was warned by God and Abraham, and he goes on and on and on and on down the list. And then he gets to this great passage in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What the author is saying is, look, you have a long testament of people who persevered amazing trials. If you read this list, you think these are things that we will never have to experience. He said, and they endured those things even though they didn't even get to see the promise. You know who gets to see the promise? We do. We do. We who get to walk with Christ. We who get to read this word. We who get to be back in fellowship with the Father and who get to spend time in a community like this. We get to see the benefits that these people could only dream of. And he says, if it was enough for them 
to look to the future, how much more should we be able to persevere who get to see those things now? Therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses. Now, here's, here's something I, that I used to fall into that I, wanna, I want us to avoid. I used to think this word witnesses meant all these people are watching you from heaven and they're gonna be disappointed if you screw up. So make sure you do a good job. That's not what this passage means. It doesn't mean we have this great cloud of witnesses watching you and they wanna make sure that you're doing well. So by guilt, they're motivating you to follow Christ. No, it says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, that means since we have so many stories that this can be done and it can be done well, take heart. If they can do it, you can do it. That's what this verse means. If all of these people throughout all of history can do it, you can do it because you have a greater reward than they did. So what do we do? What do we do? What's the, what's the point? You must endure. There probably aren't many in here, but if there is someone in here, you need to realize that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Christian life is something that you have to pursue for the rest of your life. It's something that doesn't just take a few minutes or a few hours here and there. It takes a lifetime of faithful service. This is really the point of why the author of Hebrews wrote this letter or preached this sermon, depending on what you think it is. He's just making one long, continuous argument to say, endure, endure, endure. He is a first century cheerleader for a weary church. Don't slack off. Don't lose heart. Don't lose your first love. The problem in healthy churches is this problem. Hebrews is written to a church that is very healthy, very healthy. And they have problems like anyone else. And we read those in the first 11 chapters. We realize that they're struggling a little bit with doctrine and they're struggling a little bit with their community, not going to church as regularly as they should. But overall, the book of Hebrews is written to a very healthy church. And in healthy churches, when you're not worried about people teaching heresy and you're not worried about people splitting the body and you're not worried about wolves in sheep's clothing, you know the one thing that you usually have to worry about in a healthy church? Apathy. Apathy. People decide, you know what? This church is so great, but I'm not really needed here. Things are going so well that it wouldn't make a difference if I didn't show up anymore. Or there are so many people around who are doing so well in their spiritual life, nobody would notice if I wasn't doing very well in mine. Is there a role that I can play that depends on my holiness? One of the problems in healthy churches, and I think sometimes we at Crossings may fall in this temptation too, is to feel like we're just one in the crowd. There's so many people doing so many great things that we really aren't needed. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't lose your first love. Don't feel like you're not needed. Don't feel like in your church, everybody else can pick up the slack. The question for us is, have you forgotten your first love? Are you on autopilot? Have you set a course for your spiritual life and you have been slowly drifting that direction for some time? The author of Hebrews would, said, would say, you have a hope that doesn't depend on anybody else. It depends on one person, Jesus Christ. Look to these people who didn't lose their first love through trials and tribulations, but persevered. And they received a prize that isn't half the prize that you will receive if you persevered. They all died without seeing what God had promised. 
but we have a hope and it's worth it. One of the interesting things the author of Hebrews does is he almost puts little Bible lessons all throughout the book. This is, in the Bible, this is called midrash. What midrash means is to take a passage from the Old Testament and begin to turn it over and begin to comment on it and begin to dream about it and think about what this passage might mean. And one of the favorite things of the author of Hebrews is to take a passage of scripture and to begin to extrapolate on it and expand on it. His favorite passage of scripture, and I'm sure Steve mentioned this to you, is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's one of those foundational passages that the people in the New Testament church looked back and they said, this verse explains everything. This chapter explains everything that we've seen happen. It talks about Jesus and it says, I said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. It talks about the exaltation of, of Christ. It talks about the kingly role that he played. The author of Hebrews loves this passage. He talks about it through the whole letter. One of the things that we could learn from the author of Hebrews is a love for the Old Testament read in light of the New Testament. What he's doing is he's helping us to understand how our Old Testament informs our Christian life now. And he's going to do that in chapter 12 with a passage from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. So what I want us to do, I want us to take just a moment at our tables, maybe just five minutes at our tables, and I want you to read this passage. It's in verses five and six in chapter 12. It should be on your sheet. It's cited from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And I want you to answer this question. If the point of Hebrews is to persevere, if the point of Hebrews is you have a hope that you need to cling to, that will pay off in the end in a way that you couldn't even imagine. If that's the point of Hebrews, why bring up this verse? We want to get inside the mind of the author for a moment. What does Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 have to do with perseverance? In short, what does discipline have to do with perseverance? Take a moment at your tables, talk about that connection, read these two verses and say, what does this have to do with persevering? And then I wanna begin to apply that to our lives in a way that we can walk in this week. So take a couple of minutes and do that. Okay, I know that wasn't long to discuss, but you're probably arriving at a similar conclusion than I was when I read this passage, and that is this is not a fun topic, but it is an important one. Discipline is something that is absolutely essential, not just to the Christian life, to any life. That's what the point of this passage is. This, this passage in Proverbs is a father sitting down with his child and saying, look, you need to learn discipline. These are never fun talks with your parents, or with anybody for that matter. When somebody sits you down and wants to teach you discipline, it usually means you're about to go through a very unpleasant ordeal. I can remember when I was in first grade, and I was getting in trouble at school all the time, my dad sat me down, and he said, we need to teach you some discipline. You know what he made me do? He made me go outside after school every day and sweep our driveway. And it was pretty clean driveway was pretty clean. I was like, I don't think I need to sweep today. Nothing really is on the driveway. He said, you need to go out there 
You sweep that driveway until I tell you to come inside. It was the most meaningless physical labor punishment of all time. But you know what I learned? Discipline. They also had to teach me several times after that about discipline. But that was the first step. That was the first step in learning discipline. This passage in Proverbs is a father looking to his child and saying, I want to teach you what it means to be disciplined. And the author of Hebrews grabs this passage from the Old Testament to say, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to endure, if you want to do the things that God has laid out for you to do, you're going to need discipline. And God, being a good father, here's part of the point, God being a better father than this passage in Proverbs had, he is going to discipline you. He is going to discipline you because he loves you. Here's a comforting thing. We've seen this word, paideia is the word here. We've seen this word before in Hebrews. But it wasn't applied to us. It was applied to Jesus. It was applied to Jesus. He said, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. We know that Jesus was perfect. Jesus did the will of God exactly. But one of the things that this author is making clear to us is Jesus' suffering was not meaningless. Even though Jesus was perfect, even though he knew the Father's will, even though he was pursuing the Father's will, God still disciplined him through suffering to make sure that he finished the race, to make sure that he finished the race strong. And so the point for us is, look, if God was disciplining Christ through his sufferings, how much more is God disciplining us through our sufferings? Suffering was viewed in both the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, and this word was commonly used in education settings uh, as suffering was linked to education. In order to be educated, you had to do some kind of suffering, not meaningless suffering, not cruel suffering, but intentional obstacles that you had to overcome, problems that you needed to solve, things that didn't go your way. This is essential for the Christian life. The author comments on this passage in verse 7 through 11. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children, as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom, father, whom his father does not discipline? Right? We've all been around kids who are not disciplined. We do not want to be that spiritually. We don't want to be that. He says, what loving father doesn't discipline their kids? If you are left without discipline, in which we all participate, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What a comforting word. You had an earthly parent who disciplined you, and they were imperfect, and they wanted imperfect things for your life, and they still disciplined you. So how much more should we respect our heavenly Father who disciplines us, not for his own purposes, not for selfish reasons, not because he wants to make us into something that we're not, but because he wants us to share in his holiness. God disciplines us 
so that we will be ready to spend eternity with him. One of the things I wonder about Christians and about my own life sometimes is we love to resist the discipline of the Lord. We say, you know what? I wanna do what I want while I'm on earth. And then when I get to heaven, I'll be with you and I will get my act together then for sure. But one of the questions we say is, if you continued the way you are right now, would you even want to be in heaven? Would any of that sound good to you? Being in the purity of God forever? Communing in a place where there's no more rivalry, there's no more selfishness, there's no more indulgence? Would we even want to go? The discipline of the Lord brings us to a place where that's going to feel like home in a way that we've never felt home before. But we have to persevere through the discipline. I love the comparison that this author makes, not just between Jesus and us and not just between earthly fathers and children, but the intimate relationship that we have one-on-one with God. It's almost as though he's painting a picture where if we were to sit down in front of God and say, God, all these things are happening right now and none of them are good. He would look to us and say, do you trust that I'm planning these things? Do you trust that I have an end goal for you? Do you trust that maybe what I'm doing doesn't make sense right now, but it's going to bring you to a place where you are perfectly holy to me? One of the hard truths about this passage is that some of the things that are not going well for us in life are actually things that God is intentionally using in our life. Now, I wanna make something clear. In this passage, I I think what we're talking about is the consequences that we incur from sin. I don't think this passage is talking about the things that happen outside of that scope. I I do think God can work all things for good, whether they're things that we predicted or whether things we can make sense of or whether things that we could imagine or not. I think God can work all things for good. But in this passage in particular, he's talking about a very small subset of things that happen to us. And that is the recourse for sin in the world. When someone mistreats you and you feel offended and you feel like there's no one in the world who's standing up for you, could it be that God is teaching us humility? Could it be that God is allowing us to empathize with Christ who was mistreated on our behalf? Could it be that when we speak out of anger, And we have to work for months and months and months to rebuild a relationship. Could it be that God is using that to teach us how faithful he is to us? That he's near to us every time we call on him. Could it be that in our lives, when we are selfish and we don't get what we want and we're disappointed, And we wonder if God is even looking out for us. He's trying to pry our hands off the things of the world and onto him. The question that we all have to wrestle with out of this text is, what is it in your life, maybe as a result of our own sin, that God is using and weaving together to discipline us, to discipline us, to help us to persevere better? When I think of perseverance, the thing I always think of is running, right? Running, training for something is to me the, the 
paramount example of what it means to be disciplined. You have to wake up early before anybody else is up. You have to go outside where it's either really, really hot or really, really cold or both. You have to push your body. You have to watch everybody else driving by in their air-conditioned car looking at you in your unflattering running attire, out pushing your body. But if you do it every day, or every three days a week, or whatever you're doing. If you train and you stick with it, there's something that happens that's more than just an achievement. There's freedom that takes place. There's freedom in your life when you're disciplined. And here's what I mean. I am not free, some of you guys probably are, but I am not free to run a marathon right now. I would die if I tried to do that. That's not a freedom that I have. I don't have the freedom to go and run that amount of distance. But if I got up and I trained hard for six months or a year, then I would have that freedom. That freedom would have been bought through making decisions that were unpleasant. That freedom would have been bought through pain. That freedom would have been bought through doing something that not many other people are doing. But in the end, I would have a freedom that not many other people have. And this is what happens in the Christian life. If you will discipline yourself, if you will receive the discipline from God, if you will press through unpleasant situations, if you will deny yourself what you really want from a sinful standpoint, then you will have the freedom to please God in a way that few people have. If you have the freedom to say no to the lusts of the flesh and yes to the things that are pleasing to God, you will be able to do things you never imagined you'd be able to do. If you take on the discipline of God in an area like finances and you realize that there is something more than just what you want to do with your money, you'll realize that there are things that God could do with your money that you never, ever dreamed of. It's true in every area of our life. The exhortation of this passage is be disciplined because then you will have the freedom to endure then you'll have the freedom to finish strong in your faith. So for those of you whose life is completely pleasant, those of you that nothing really is going wrong, your prayer request list is very short, this passage probably doesn't have anything for you. There's probably nothing in here. I'm sorry you came this morning because there's nothing really to say to you. But for those of us who things are not going 100% the way we want it, For those of us who have a long prayer list, for those of us who are asking God for things we feel like he's not even listening for, this passage has something extremely important for you. Endure, endure, endure. Get a little bit of spiritual grit. I was reading an article this week. This is like the kind of article that they must have written this with me in mind. The title of the article was something like, Navy SEALs Give Advice on Life Success. I was like, of course I'll read this. Always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. They interviewed this guy, and they talked about pushing yourself. They said, you know, one of the differences between a Navy SEAL and a, and a regular person is that the Navy SEAL is crazy. Actually, the thing that they said was that the Navy SEAL has a tenacity level. They have an endurance level. They said, actually, if you test Navy SEALs in their training and their operations, when you feel like you have nothing left, you actually have 40% left in the tank. When you get to that point where you have that impulse that says, no, it's time to stop, it's time, everything's out of the tank, 
you have 40% left. They said, the thing that makes a successful Navy SEAL is knowing that. Knowing that makes all the difference. When you're running, when you're staying up at night, when you haven't had food, what they said is those guys can realize you have 40% left in the tank. I wonder how many of us feel empty in our spiritual lives. I wonder how many of us feel like we don't have what it takes to endure. And I wonder how many of us have 40% left in the tank. Like we said at the beginning, your greatest spiritual asset is not your brain, it's not your church, it's not your spiritual heritage, it's your grit. It is your spiritual grit. Passion plus perseverance equals a life well lived for Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We thank you uh, for your word that tells us that we don't have to lose heart, even though we feel like we're wasting away. Lord, you are renewing us every day. Lord, we thank you that your spirit provides us with things that the people in Hebrews 11 couldn't even have imagined. Lord, we thank you that you are with us every day, disciplining us and loving us so that we can finish this race strong. Lord, I pray that you would give us grit. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to finish strong. Lord, I pray that you would bless this group. I pray that you would bless Steve, bring him back safely next week, or that we might continue learning how to follow you closer, being conformed to the image of your son. Lord, we praise you for this morning, mostly for Jesus, who gave himself for us. So we give ourselves to him. It's in his name we pray, amen.